All right, so we do have a scripture reader for us today in the person of Leah Pulikevich, who is back there under the table. You can just stay there or come up here, Leah, whatever is your pleasure. All right, go for it. Um, from the book of Kings, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Solomon arranged a marriage contract with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He married Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he completed building his royal palace, God's temple, and the wall around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people were worshiping at local shrines because at that time, no temple had yet been built to the name of God. Solomon loved God and continued to live in the God-honoring ways of David, his father, except he also worshiped at the local shrines, offering sacrifices and burning incense. The king went to Gibeon, the most prestigious of the local shrines, to worship. He sacrificed the thousand whole burnt offerings on that altar. <laughs> that night, there in Gibeon, God appeared to Solomon in a dream. God said, what can I give you? Ask. Solomon said, you were extravagantly generous in love with David, my father, and you lived faithfully in your presence. His relationships were just and his heart right. You have persisted in this great and generous love by giving him, and to this very day, a son to sit on the throne. And now, here I am, God, my God. You have made me your servant, ruler of the, king ruler of the kingdom in place of David, my father. I'm too young for this, a mere child. I don't know the ropes, and I hardly know the ins and outs of this job. And here I am, set down in the middle of the people you've chosen, the great people, far too many to ever count. Here's what I want. Give me a God-listening heart so I can lead your people well, discerning the difference between good and evil. For who on their own is capable of leading your glorious people? God, the master, was delighted with Solomon's response. And God said to him, because you have asked for this and haven't grasped after a long life or riches or the doom of your enemies, but you have asked for the ability to lead and govern well, I'll give you what you've asked for. I'm giving you a wise and mature heart. There's never been one like you before, and there will be no one after. As a bonus, I'm giving you both the wealth and the glory you didn't ask for. There's not a king anywhere who will come up to your mark. And if you stay on course, keeping your eye on the life map, and the God signs, as your father David did, I'll also give you a long life. Let's give it up for Leah. Nice job. That was a lot. <laughs> she didn't know she was getting like a whole chapter, but there it is. So Solomon, uh, wisest man who ever lived, as the scripture says, as uh, God seems to say uh, in, the, in the passage. Hope you're okay, sweetie. All right. Those chairs are pesky. You got to watch them. So um, you have Solomon here, and he's given this great gift, and he was very, very wise. Uh, there are some accounts of his life that are pretty uh, worth noting. There's one story in particular where they talk about the judgment of Solomon, and one of the stories that he has is he has a court case. He's holding court, and these two women come in, uh, and they're prostitutes. And these two prostitutes come in, and one is saying to Solomon, Here's the thing. We both live in the same house. We both had babies at the same time. Uh, this person over here, um, while she was asleep, uh, she rolled over on her child, and the child lost its life. In the middle of the night, she figured this out, and she swapped babies with me, and I want my baby back. And of course, the other woman denies everything. So Solomon sits with this and wonders, 
what should I do? And so he asks for a sword, and he calls for the child that is living to be cut in half, because that makes sense. <laughs> he asked for this because he knew what was probably going to happen, which is the true mother said, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, I don't want this child to die. I would rather my child live with this other horrible person uh, than die. And so everybody looked at this and said, indeed, this Solomon is very wise. Now, what's interesting about this is this isn't the only tradition or culture that has a story just like this. In fact, about this time in history, and this is true for a lot of the ancient Near East, you see a lot of mirroring of other cultures and ways of thinking. The Jewish people are wanting to say to themselves and to the world through the scriptures that our Solomon is very, 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 very wise. But there was a similar story about Buddha, uh, very similar, same context, except for it wasn't a sword. Buddha said, okay, let's have the two women play tug of war with the kid. And whoever wins the tug of war wins the kid. And the mother, recognizing how much pain that was going to cause her child, she stops the process and says, we'll have none of this. So again, we just see that they're wanting to show us that this guy is so wise. But the thing I want to talk about today is what do you do uh, with Solomon? Because while he was reportedly really, really wise, he was also really, really foolish at the same time. Even while he's doing this, and for some time later, it says in here that he made a treaty with Pharaoh. We're not exactly sure. There's still debate about how old Solomon was when he got the throne. Uh, some say kind of the, the legend is he may have been as young as 12, but a lot of scholars are thinking, well, if you look at the different timelines in the Bible, he's probably 20-ish somewhere in that neck of the woods, which kind of makes sense. Either way, pretty young to be leading a nation. So he asked for, for prayer and or he asked for wisdom. He's got uh, this deal that he made uh, with Pharaoh, with Egypt. You know where Israel sits, right? So it was right in a thoroughfare of trade from, from Northern Africa, from what they would call the Far East to for Rome and Europe and all that, everything kind of crossed through this. So with every marriage that Solomon made, it became a treaty with these other countries. And why would they do that? Why, would they, why wouldn't they just sign a piece of paper? Because when you're married, there's family connection there. So you're more likely to honor the treaty because you're related in some way. Well, Solomon ended up with a lot of treaties. Uh, sort of the legend is he's got like a thousand uh, wives and concubines. I mean, just an extraordinary amount, which is why Solomon was exhausted almost all of the time. <laughs> but when we look at that, we're like, huh, what do, what do we do with that? And then when we ask more questions about, about Solomon, we recognize that while he was really wise, he didn't seem to employ his wisdom all the time and the decisions that he made. Kind of like what uh, what Brian was talking about up here with the Lesson One song is, is lead up to that. Because a lot of people know the right thing to do, but sometimes they struggle to actually do the right thing, to make the right life choice. There's a difference between wisdom and living wisely. And I want to talk about that challenge. Now, luckily for you and me, this is purely an academic exercise because as far as I can tell, Solomon is the only one in history that was really wise and failed to act wisely. Can I get an amen? 
Of course, none of you have ever done that, right? None of you have ever known the appropriate thing to do, the wise thing to do, and done something different. I know none of you good people would have. I may have on occasion. In fact, as Paul said, I hate the fact that I know the thing to do and I don't do it, and I know the thing I'm not supposed to do and I do it. Uh, So he lived with this tension. And sometimes we have experiences in our life which let us know we've we've got some work to do. And I want to talk about that work today that needs to be done. This week, we're going to talk a lot about internal work. Next week, we're going to keep talking about wisdom, and we're going to talk about external devices and external mechanisms that we can put in place to help further ensure that we actually live wisely, not that we're just rooted in wisdom in some way. And so this week, I want to take a look at just a couple of things on how I'm pretty confident that Solomon didn't do much interior work. The first thing has to do with how he talks about his dad. So he talks about his dad, David, man after God's own heart, favorite king of Israel. He talks about him in extremely glowing terms. Uh, And when I read this, what comes to mind is funeral services. Because when we honor somebody in a funeral service, it's all positive. Even, even stories that are maybe not entirely wonderful about a person, we spin them in the story to make them incredibly positive and wonderful. I don't know, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, there, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, in case you didn't know that. And uh, I've done a lot of funeral services. And sometimes for people who had very, very, very rough lives with very, very rough choices and in some of those circumstances, I've known a lot about that backstory, and I knew that there was a lot of stuff to say that could have been said that was not said out of wanting to honor the person after they had died. And I'm kind of looking at how Solomon looked at his own dad, and I'm recognizing that if he actually believed what he was saying here fully, then he was kidding himself, and it would have done him great a great favor if he would have thought a little bit more about that most influential person in his life, which was probably for him, his father. Because David may have been a man after God's own heart. It may have been his heart of hearts, but he struggled to live wisely. The fact that Solomon was the king is a case in point. His son Absalom should have been the king. Are you familiar with Solomon's mother? Her name was Bathsheba. (laughs) Does that ring a bell? Now, he's not the first child that David and Bathsheba had. That child died soon after birth. And after a moment of grieving and healing and all that, Bathsheba, who now became David's wife, they had Solomon. And Bathsheba demanded as a gift of sorts, and as a promise, as a security, actually, for her life and for Solomon, that he would become the next king. And David granted her wish. How do you suppose that went over with Absalom and the other sons who were older than Solomon? Not so great. Really, really unwise move. Solomon's own life and his backstory, who his mom was, and the mistakes that were there are a showcase of David not making the wise choice. And there were many, many other things uh, that happened along the way. 
he had to have known that Absalom <laughs> was not going to be happy with this. He had to have known that Absalom was going to be furious about that. Uh, the fact that Absalom tried to kill David was a pretty good indication <laughs> that there were some issues with Absalom. But when he heard that Absalom uh, was disgruntled, he had to ask somebody else, Ah, Absalom, Absalom, how is my son Absalom? He had to ask somebody else because he didn't know himself. David was deeply flawed. Even if he was a man after God's own heart, he was deeply flawed, and it would have behooved Solomon to do his work on understanding why. I've known, uh, I've known people on both ends of this spectrum of daddy issues. I've known folks on the good news side of the daddy issues where uh, I have some friends, guys that are so enamored with their fathers that they could do no wrong. Uh, and if, even if I asked them, well, how are they human? They just like, how do they ever, did they ever mess up? And they can't think of one thing, <laughs> which is in a way kind of beautiful. It's kind of nice, but there's a challenge there, isn't there? Because so long as they're on a pedestal, there's no seeing their humanity. And if they can't see their humanity and understand it and integrate and understand how to deal with that, there's a pretty good chance they're going to struggle on their own humanity as well. And I have other friends uh, that experienced fathers who were monsters. No other word for it. Monsters. Physical, sexual, emotional abuse. Horrible horrible stuff. And sometimes these people have done work on it just to acknowledge that it happened. Sometimes they reach a point where they're like, I don't ever want to think about that person ever again. And in fact, for some of you, if you've been through this, that's probably a good idea unless you have help to do it. Because that can be such a dark, painful place. You need somebody there with you to guide you. But even in that situation, to work into that process, to wonder about the why behind the what happened, helps see the humanity that's there and changes our vision. Doesn't excuse anything, but it helps us see the humanity that is right there before us. I had pretty healthy parents, both deeply devoted uh, Christian people. My dad was a pastor. He's an upstanding guy. And really, when I whine and complain about my daddy issues, they're really, in the grand scope of things, pretty minor. And yet they were there. They were issues for me that I didn't know were there until I was in college. College is that time of life when you begin to differentiate yourself from uh, your family of origin and understand who you are. And from a distance, I recognize some humanity in my own father things I wish would have been a little different, not these horrible, egregious things of violence that, you know, some people experience, but things that I just wish had been different. And it was difficult to see it. I wept. I wept. Because one of my heroes had fallen off the pedestal. And I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to metabolize that so hard but over time and doing this kind of work to understand him and what made him and again we're not talking major things here he was a good dad but over time 
understanding his humanity and what formed him changed my eyes. It was healing. I was able to appreciate who he was and who he was becoming. It was healing. If Solomon could have done some of that work on David, he may have recognized some of the flaws in his own life. Because David, I mean, we see it right here. He's already supposed to be kind of wise, and he's going down to worship at these other places. Those places that we're talking about, those are sort of like spiritual brothels. That's what we're talking about. There was this one uh, very well-known uh, spiritual place where worship was happening in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, right outside of Jerusalem, a grove of trees. And these uh, priests and priestesses from other cultures for pagan gods, which simply means not Jewish God, uh, were doing their worship rites. And the primary act of worship had to do with sexuality. So Solomon was engaging in that kind of violation of covenant, which any person with any wisdom at all would say, we know this is a bad idea. And by the way, this isn't just one of these things like God is this big bully, like, well, it's my way or the highway. It's me or nobody. That's, that's not the point to see here. I want you to recognize that when, when we're comparing different things here, we're not talking about going after deep spirituality, but in the practice of worship, in the cultic practices that were taking place between Judaism and what God was calling for with them and what was happening in other cultures, it was a very stark contrast. God and the kind of cultic practices that uh, were being encouraged and enforced and encoded were going to be fairly humane. There was never going to be any sexual practice as an act of worship. There was never going to be any human sacrifice as an act of worship. And even the animal sacrifices that were going to happen were going to be severely diminished compared to other cultures. Whereas other cultures, you've got, you've got people who are being used and abused quite literally. So sometimes the actual worship practice in antiquity has ethical dimensions. And Solomon was a party to incredibly unethical actions. If he had taken the time to see that his father was human and identify how he was human, there would have been a good chance that he could have avoided some of those things because he could recognize himself starting to make those, those same mistakes. You know, sometimes we don't want to go here because it feels dishonoring, especially if they pass. It's like, oh, I shouldn't say such things about the dead. That's not a loving behavior. And what I'm telling you is it is a loving behavior. It is a loving behavior because as you do this hard work, you are seeing them for who they are and letting them be human, letting God have the opportunity to heal your heart and heal your eyes so that you can see them for who they are, but not to reject them but so that you can see them in, in their process. And that in and of itself, even for monsters, is somehow helpful. Doesn't make it all better. Doesn't mean you're going to end with a hug. Nothing like that. But it just helps us understand that there's always a why behind the what. And if Solomon would have done that work with his own dad, maybe he wouldn't have done so much what because he would have corrected his why. Which gets me to the second thing. Unfortunately, Solomon didn't have any psychological inventories because psychology hadn't been invented yet, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
but he would have deeply benefited from deep internal work. And so what I'm giving you today in the blog, if you go onto our website, go into the teachings and find today's teachings at noon today it launches, and I give you uh, links to two different inventories, which I think you could find very, very helpful. My bachelor's is, was in psychology. I love this stuff. You're probably sick of me talking about this stuff if you've been around here for a while, but I just want to describe what these are and why I think they're helpful. Uh, the first one is based on uh, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Now, the Myers-Briggs is probably the most widely used personality inventory in the world. It's used uh, in educational places, workplace, family therapy, all kinds of things. And what it does, you take this brief test and it identifies you as one of 16 different unique types. And with each one of those types, depending how strongly you answered things, you kind of see how strong those letters are represented in you. When you understand your type, this particular website uh, that I found uh, churns out all kinds of very helpful information about why you are the way you are, what motivates you, what drains you, what are your, what are your blind spots in your life? What are you more prone to follow after? Where are you prone to fail? Those are so helpful to know. And I've got a deal for you. Uh, if you actually do it, which will take you a whole seven minutes to complete this little quiz, uh, and you let me know uh, what, your, what your type is, uh, because I'm on a professional level with this thing, uh, I will send you back the 200 and something page uh, document PDF that is about you. So you can read about yourself. Is that fair? All you got to do is at noon today, go click the thing, take the test. I send it to me what your type is, and I will send you uh, this thing so you can learn so much about yourself. By the way, uh, this is this is kind of fun to do uh, with friends and family. I highly recommend it. You learn a lot about each other, especially if you don't if you've never done one of these type things with a friend or family members. It can be really, really insightful. It's like light bulbs can turn on uh, for why your family member is so weird, so you think, <laughs> and why they think you're so weird. Uh, and we can see that in our family dynamics. We kind of nerd out on this stuff, and it really is helpful. The other one, which you've heard me talk about so much, you probably know where I'm going with, is the Enneagram. I love the Enneagram. I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> I'm an Ennean nerd on this stuff. And the reason I like this ancient tool is because not only do I think it's, it's creepily accurate, so is the MBTI, uh, and it puts you into one of nine types that aren't really related to the MBI stuff, uh, but once you get it and they give you a description of your type and what motivates you, what do you avoid, what are your conflict areas, how are you in relationships and all this stuff, which is so helpful. It also gives you this measure, which I've thrown at you before, about what healthy looks like, what average looks like, and what unhealthy looks like. That is so helpful because I'm able to look at this list of nine different statements, three in the healthy range, three in the average range, and three in the unhealthy range, and I'm able to see kind of where I'm at and recognize that in some times in my journey, I've been healthy and I've really done a good job, <laughs> uh, really clicking. But then I recognize that a lot more of the time than I would like, I've been pretty average. And it's just kind of been okay, not unhealthy. But then I also recognize there have been times in my life when I've been unhealthy. And I can see myself reflected in the statements. I don't like it. 
but how else am I going to know how I need to grow? Unless I have something telling me, this is when you need to grow. For some of you, the only voice you're going to get is a psychological inventory. Uh, reading this thing back and saying, I've got some work to do here. I have made mistakes, and this is probably why I made those mistakes. You're learning the why behind the what, so you don't repeat the what. So you don't hurt people the way that you normally hurt people. Because my bet is, if we spent some time having long conversation, I would bet that the hurtful things that you've done in your life the most have a theme to them. That they're all related somehow to each other. You do the same kind of offense over and over and over again because that's human nature. And until you recognize the why behind that what, you're just going to continue doing it. You're going to continue hurting people and yourself because you're hurting other people. And that's damaging your relationship with them and therefore yourself. Now, maybe you're in a relationship uh, with family or dear friends, and they are an additional mirror to your life which makes total sense. I was listening to a podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, not that it matters, and they were talking about marriage, marriage covenants and that, and the, the podcast wasn't about that. It was really about love and um, how we understand parenting and love dynamics and all that, and they're talking about making that marriage vow, choosing to get married, and the statement that the podcast people were making were, was quite startling, even if, even if it was true, because they said, did we realize on that day when we made that pledge that we were saying yes to the person who had absolutely hurt us more than any other person in the world and who we would hurt more than any other person in the world? Not because we want to, but because they are that close. You know what I mean? I love my wife. And yet, just by virtue of proximity, I know there have been times when I've been a fool and it has hurt her. And I hate it. I do not like, uh, I do not like hearing that I've been an idiot and a fool, even if said in the best possible way, because I don't want to be that. But the criticism that you hear from people that are close to you is gold, if you can accept it. That personality inventories, doing your homework on the people who were your wisdom sources growing up and understanding their biases and what motivated them so that you don't just adopt their biases unwittingly. This is the stuff that makes us more whole, more able to follow in the footsteps of Jesus because that's what he was able to do. He was able to listen to the Spirit of God lead him and direct him because he was able to keep everything else in its proper perspective. He knew who he was. He knew what his gifts were. He listened to the Spirit and followed it, mostly unencumbered by the external forces that were around him. Why? Because he did the work. He didn't just become this. He did the work. And if we want to have a similar kind of relationship with God, which leads us to an abundance of life, that leads us to good places, even if they're difficult places, good places. If we want a kind of life that's worth living, that's worth struggling for, and even worth dying for, it's going to require some work on our part. Work that Solomon, I don't think, ever really did. You know, Solomon, um, 
because he had wisdom to a degree, Israel was never more prosperous or powerful under Solomon's reign. Never. They had the best roads they'd ever had. They had the best health care they'd ever had. Everybody was driving a nice camel, a chicken in every pot. I mean, it was sweet, right? Everything was going great. And when Solomon died, you know what happened? In short order, the kingdom split, divided right down the middle, making each vulnerable to oppressors. Solomon may have married a lot of people to make a lot of good deals, but it was not the answer to keep the people together. He ignored the covenant of God, which is to treat people, your own people, other people, the planet, with dignity and respect because they are created in the image of God as well. And because he neglected that, it set the country up for political failure almost immediately. You got one life to live, says the Kona beer commercial. <laughs> so live it. But how are you going to live it? You have the opportunity to be more wise, to be more whole, to be more well. And by the way, I'm sure I've said this to my children uh, at different times, and I'm going to say it again here now because they're here. Uh, I hope they do the same work on me because I am flawed. I, I know they think I'm absolutely perfect in every way. <laughs> Not true. I hope they do the work. I hope that I've done enough work to limit the amount of counseling they're going to go through because of me. <laughs> but I know they're going to need to do the work, and I know it's going to be painful because it sucks. It's hard. But I hope it helps them understand me as a human being, and I hope it helps them understand themselves. And as they give me grace over time, I hope it helps them give themselves grace over time that they're in process too. Give your people permission to do this work on you. You'll bless them if you do. Okay, so you got homework. You're going to do some work on uh, your tangible things to do this week. Uh, do some homework on your wisdom teachers. Uh, what are their flaws? What are their biases? So that you can avoid the pitfalls that they fell into. Second thing, do some work on yourself, your interior work. Giving you two inventories and made a deal, which is incredible. All you have to do is tell me what your type is. And I'll send you this big document to learn all about yourself. And I won't charge you a nickel for it. Okay? It's probably legal. Uh, pretty sure it's legal. <laughs> we'll work on that part. But anyway, uh, that's, your, that's your challenge today. You with me on this? Yeah. And then next week, we'll give you some guardrails, some stuff to integrate into your life that's on the external side of things to sort of keep you on the wisdom path. So you're not just full of wisdom, but you're actually more likely to live in a wise way and less a fool. All right, let's pray together. So God, our lizard brains naturally avoid pain. We don't want anything to do with it. That's why we fight and flee. We want to avoid pain at all costs. And yet, here we have an example of a guy who should have faced into the pain, should have done the painful hard work of interior work, of examining the voices of the people that he thought were his heroes and formed him so deeply. God, I pray that we will have the wisdom and make the wise choice 
to have the courage with your help to do this hard work, to look carefully at who shaped us and why they may have done what they did, even if it was painful on us. Help us have understanding and see them as human beings, imperfect, broken human beings that probably, if we knew the full story, would really understand more fully why they were the train wreck they were. And not that it'll make it all better, but it will give us a more humane set of eyes, not just for them, but eventually ourselves. So God, also give us courage to look at ourselves carefully. Give us the courage to understand what makes us tick. Help us understand what are the egoistic uh, motivators that don't lead us down the narrow path that leads to life, but much more likely lead us down a path that destroys. Help us differentiate what is wise and what is foolish, even if it's hard. Our desire, God, is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured even the cross, despising its shame, and has now found himself fully in your embrace. May we have such courage for the sake of the joy that is before us to do the same. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming today, everybody. Hope you had a good experience, uh, and we will see you next week. All right, take care.